If you have your Bibles uh, and they're open now to 2 Kings, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, in this chapter, chapter 3 this morning of 2 Kings 2. Uh, some wonder why we go through a book like Kings and why it's even in the Bible. And I think one of the reasons that Kings is in the Bible is because God always intended to have a king that would rule over Israel. In fact, you can read about that. I believe it's in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Before there was ever kings, God made provision for what a king of Israel would look like and how they should act and behave. And so when we come to the book of Kings, we, we see that God is now wanting to fulfill the covenant that he made with David to have a king that would forever be on the throne that would rule Israel. And what you find now in the book of Kings is that time and time again, these kings fail. They don't live up to the standard that God has for them. They don't live up to the standard of leaving, leading the people in the way that God would have them lead the people. And so we find with the kings of um, Israel, so to speak, there was not one good one, not one that did any good before the Lord. They led the people into sin. You find with the kings of Judah that there was only a small portion of them that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so it leaves us longing and wondering, will God ever fulfill His promise for a perfect king who will reign in perfect righteousness. Well, we know that that king is Jesus. And so these books prepare us and lead the way for the fact that mankind fails, that the men that we appoint, or even that God appointed, fell short of the standards God had for them. And only Jesus will reign perfectly in perfect righteousness forever and ever and ever. So these books lead us to Christ. So in the meantime, what we are faced with then is the fact of God working with uh, earthly kings and uh, subjects in those kingdoms. And one of the things that amazes me as I go through a book like Kings is the intimate way that God is involved in this world. God is not a God who exists way up there and doesn't really care. We don't believe in deism where God just sort of created the world and set it to spinning and he just sits up there and watches it. The Bible is about God's intimate involvement in the world in which he made. And we see how, how far that intimacy goes in, at Christmas time when he entered the world in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see in, uh, uh, in the book of Kings the intimate involvement of God with his people. I just want to make four observations from chapter 3 as we work our way uh, through them this morning. And I'm going to read chunks of uh, this passage at a time. You would do well on your own to maybe go this afternoon and read it all to uh, get a feel for the whole uh, text, but I just want to take certain chunks as we go through it this morning. So the first few verses that I want to read is simply the first three verses of 2 Kings chapter 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, and some of your Bibles will say Joram, his, his, his name is spelt in two different ways, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. I often just write notes, and I started with, with writing notes on my notepad, and uh, they all started with, hmm. And as I finished these three verses and thought about them for a little minute, I, I wrote, hmm. Not as bad as he could have been, but not as good as he should have been. Let me just unpack that for a little bit. We're, we're in about 850 B.C., give or take. Jehoram is king of Israel. Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. And as we read a text like this, we, we, we zero in on what matters most in life. 
These are really important questions that we ask ourselves as we live our life and certainly as we face the day when our life might be summarized by someone somewhere. It's not like King Jehoram didn't do things. He probably had some great building projects. He probably built some pretty cool cities. He probably had some gardens that he designed. He probably captured a few um, uh, uh, people. He probably fought a few wars. He probably accomplished some pretty significant things in the 12 years that he reigned. But the question that is answered in verse 2 is the question of what was his spiritual life like? How did he measure up beside God's word? What was he in relation to being a covenant-keeping part of Israel? And to each of us here today, that same reality is before us. At the end of our lives, whether we're a follower of Jesus or not, there will be a spiritual assessment made of us. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what will be said of us? For these verses, I think, zero in on what really we should focus on and what really matters in life. And these verses, I think, are ultimately intended to lead us to repentance. So let's say someone, God, for instance, were to summarize your spiritual life in 50 words or less. That's how many words are used to summarize Jehoram's life. How would it go? For Jehoram, it's not at all comforting. And I suspect the same words could be used for um, countless millions and millions of people who have walked this earth before us. He or she was not as evil as they could have been. Nevertheless, they were not as good as they should have been. This ought not to be our motto in life. I'm not as bad as I could be, but I'm not as good as I should be. We need to unpack this just for a little minute. Notice, first of all, it says of Jeroboam, this is the, the, the first phrase, Jeroboam did what was evil in the Lord's sight. That in itself is a devastating statement. When we think of evil, though, if we think of it at all, we often think of it comparatively or categorically. The designation evil for many of us is reserved for the worst of the worst in the world in which we live. Or we say to ourselves, I might not be perfect, but I'm certainly not evil. The Bible is not at all that fuzzy on evil and who is evil. To sin, to disobey God, to go against His word is to do evil. Thoughts and intentions that are contrary to God's word and will are called evil. David confesses to God, against you and only you have I done what is evil in your sight. He acknowledges his behavior was evil in the Lord's sight. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Jehoram is counted as one who sinned against the Lord. He was a sinner. He sinned in the Lord's sight. He was evil in the Lord's sight. But we say, well, how evil was he? Well, it says that he was not like his father or mother, for those of us who are parents, that's really not what we want to hear our kids say. For he removed the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Clearly here, and you can find this woven throughout Scripture, some people are more evil than others. Some are greater sinners than others. There are levels of evil that are described in the Bible. Do you know who Jehoram's father and mother were? Ahab and Jezebel. Just the name Jezebel. Even if you don't know her, it sends shivers up and down your spine. This is what it is said of Ahab and Jezebel. There was none. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight, 
like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. It's like Jeroboam says, you know, I've got boundaries. There are some sins that are even beyond me, like my mom and dad. But then it says, nevertheless, Jehoram clung to the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. The truth is, he liked his sin. But he had limits, you know. The writer notes that he clung to these sins. He would not let them go. It's like he wrapped his arms around them and hung on for dear life. It's the exact same word that is used to describe um, what a man does when he marries a woman. He clings or he cleaves to his wife. It's the same word that's used to describe how um, uh, Ruth attached herself to Naomi when Naomi was going back to, uh, to Bethlehem. It says that Ruth clung to Naomi. You get the picture. It's a hanging on to. It's a not letting go of. And he clung to idolatry. He clung to state religion. He clung to the religion that Jeroboam had created, which caused all of Israel to sin against God. It was bull religion. You need to be careful how you say that. But it is bull. It is wrong. And he clung to that. And it says he did not turn away from them. That means not only did he cling to them, but he didn't repent of them. He knew they were wrong. He knew that he ought not cling to them, but he did not repent of them. For some months, I have been working around in my head, Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. See the importance of confession and repentance? It's not just enough to confess your sin. It's not just to acknowledge to, enough to acknowledge, well, yeah, I sin. But the Bible says we need to repent of it, which means turn away from it, walk away from it, let go of it. This is a damning mindset that Jehoram had. It's this sort of mindset in which we tell ourselves that God is only concerned about the really, really evil person. We tell ourselves that God judges on a sliding scale. We tell ourselves that a little bit of sin isn't really that big a deal. But we forget that God's standard for us is perfection. It's perfect righteousness. And initially that causes us to despair. Because we know that none of us is ever going to accomplish that. We know that none of us is ever going to be perfect. We know that every one of us has lied and will probably lie this week. We'll know that every one of us has probably um, uh, worshipped an idol and we will this week. We know that every one of us in one way or another is going to sin numerous times this week. And so we will never reach this standard. Does that mean that we throw the standard out the window then? Does that mean that God says, well, we're all okay? Then No. It says, God still says to us, you need to meet that standard. Well, how do we meet it? We meet it in Christ Jesus. It's by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's by trusting in Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' perfection that we are accepted by God. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, this amazing thing takes place. And it's, it's hard to understand, explain. You can feel it. It's true in the Bible. But what happens is that God takes our sin all of our clinging to idolatry, he takes it off of us and he places it on Christ. 
And he takes all of Christ's perfection, his perfect obedience, and he places it on us. So God sees us as being perfect in his eyes because he sees us through the good grid of Christ Jesus. And that's what happens when we become united with Christ. We become perfect. But that doesn't mean then that we can live how we want. Because in 2 Timothy, we're told, let him who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. None of this, well, I'm not as bad as I, as I could be, but I'm not as good as I should be. No, the Bible still has the standard, even in Christ, that we are to pursue. Even though we're uh, perfect in God's eyes, that perfection is worked out in our life. There's another verse which, which says um, that you are to leave the sin which so easily clings to you. You get that? We're not to cling to sin, but sin sometimes clings to us. And we're supposed to cut it off. We're supposed to disentangle ourselves from it. This is why, though, loved ones, that God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus because he knew we couldn't meet the standard he had set for us. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. But we achieve that favor through faith in Jesus Christ, if that's even the way to put it. And that faith is not even our own. It is a gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Not so bad, but not so good. It's a damning summary. The wages of sin, even the nevertheless sins, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. We need the perfection of Jesus. We need the righteousness of Jesus. Anything less than that is not good enough. Pick up your Bibles again and let's read from verses 4 to verse 14. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and he sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I'll go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jeroram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, we three kings. And they made a circuitous march of seven days. In other words, they took the long way around. They went down around the Dead Sea and came up the bottom of it into Moabites, or the land of the Moabites. And there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, through whom may we, we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servant answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured, and, uh, and who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, no. It's the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. 
I wrote, hmm. Why the sudden interest in God's Word? There is a secular account of this particular battle that was found on a Moabite stone. It's called the Mesha Steel. It was found in 1868. And it contains an inscription that confirms the details of this battle. You can go online and dig around on that. But what happens is King Ahab's dad dies. And his death seems to be a great opportunity for him to rebel. He says, enough is enough. I'm not going to give 100,000 lambs anymore. I'm not going to give the wool of 100,000 rams anymore. That's too steep a price for peace. Payment was overdue. Joram thinks, well, we better deal with this. But he wasn't going to tackle it alone. So he's going to invite Jehoshaphat along for the war. And this wasn't Jehoshaphat's first, first dance party. You can go and read 1 Kings 22. You can read a second time that Jehoshaphat found himself in a similar situation and went with the, or with the king Ahab into a similar kind of battle. Why would Jehoshaphat make such a dumb alliance? Why would the king of Judah throw in his weight and his army with the king of Israel? Well, marriage, of course. Marriage. That's what possessed him to say, I am as you are, my people are your people, my horses are your horses, because he had entered into a marriage alliance with Ahab that still hold, held weight as Ahab's son now took the throne over Israel. He had entered into a marriage alliance with Ahab in the sense that Ahab's daughter, Jehoram's sister, married Jehoshaphat's son. And you know what? She was a Jezebel clone. And you can read about the destruction that she brought to Judah because she had embraced her mother's idolatry. So off go these kings. Along the way, they pick up the king of Edom. Not once do we find that they consult God, they ask for God, they seek God's wisdom, they just have a big issue in front of them, they think, ah, we can handle this. Off they go. But poor preparation and divine providence finally find them in a pickle. There's no water. And as any of you know who have ever crossed any kind of desert, the desert is no place you want to be without water. The king of Israel falls into despair. Oh no, oh no, the Lord has summoned us three kings together here only to hand us over to Moab. I mean, what's this? Is this a spark of spiritual life? Mm, hardly. I don't think he even knows who the Lord is. Is this a Hail Mary kind of prayer? You know, the kind of prayer when you get into trouble and you just launch something and hope that God somewhere or some God will answer or come to your aid? Maybe it's wrong-headedness. Um, Proverbs chapter 19.3 is a passage I've also thought about a bit. Man's own foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. We make a dumb decision, and when it doesn't work out right, we blame God. I'm no longer surprised by how many wrong-headed choices people make and then blame God. But as with Ahab now again, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, is the one with some kind of spiritual sense about him. And he says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord around here? Let's go inquire of him. And notice Jehoram is clueless. He doesn't know about the prophet Elijah. We get the impression he doesn't know, even know that Elisha is around anywhere. 
It's one of his servants that says to him, oh, but there is this guy, Elisha. He used to pour water on Elijah's hands. He's nearby. And you think, well, how did Elisha show up? Here we are at the bottom of the Dead Sea. And did God speak to Elisha and say, you need to follow this band of kings because they're going to get into trouble? I don't know, but nonetheless, he was nearby. And Jehoram comes and he says to the king, listen, um, I think we're in trouble here. We're going to lose this battle. And notice what Elisha says to him. Go to the prophets of your father and mother. I don't know if he's referring to a, a new bunch of Baal and Asherah prophets, because remember that when Elijah, Elijah called down fire in heaven, there was that big battle between all the prophets. 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth were killed. That was not that long ago, so maybe there's a whole bunch of new ones. Or maybe he's saying, go to the prophets of Jeroboam, you know, the ones that he handpicked so that you could have this bull worship in these little towns. You go, go, go talk to them. They're the ones that you worship. They're the ones that you follow. You've not wanted anything to do with the Word of God so far, so why now turn to Him? Why now? Go get your help elsewhere. It's really a fair point, though, isn't it? You've consistently gone to your other gods. You've consistently sought them out. You've consistently worshipped them. You've consistently sacrificed to them. You've consistently ignored God and done your own thing. You've demonstrated time and time again that you're fine on your own, that your gods are able to help you. So what's changed? Don't come to me, God says. Go to them. In fact, we find that in the Bible quite a bit. They lift their idols on their shoulders and they carry it. They set it in its place. They deposit it in their bank account. Oh, that's not there. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries out, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. To an image carved from a piece of wood, they say, you are my father. To an idol chiseled from a block of stone, they say, you are my mother. They turn their back on me, but in times of trouble, they cry out to me, come and save us. But why not call on the gods you have made? When trouble comes, let them save you if they can. Verse 14 is really worth your own thought process in the next little while, but just let me point out a few things as Elijah speaks to him. As the Lord of hosts lives. The Lord of hosts is a fascinating title for the Lord that's found throughout the Bible. It's a description of God which tells us that God is the God of the armies of heaven and earth. God is the God of secular armies, of spiritual armies, of, of invisible armies, of, of, of angelic armies. God is the one that directs all the battles of any kind of army on this world and in the heavenlies. He is the Lord of hosts. Do you believe that? And then it says, the Lord of hosts lives. As the Lord of hosts lives, beloved, God is not dead. He is the living God. He is real. He's not a piece of carved wood that we tack up on our shelves. He's not a piece of silver that we've shaped um, into an object of our imagination which does not see and does not hear and cannot save. God is the living God, intimately involved in the affairs of the creation that He has made. Do you believe that? And then He says, if you did not have respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah... This is, I would not look at you. I wouldn't take notice of you. That should really get our attention when we read something like that in the Bible. Especially if you're an individual who plays fast and loose with the things of God. Or if you're one who only gives lip service to the Lord, but then in times of peculiar desperation 
have a sudden interest in him. Can you be sure that God will respond to you? If you consistently reject him, if you consistently deny his word, if you consistently live as though he doesn't exist and don't care if he exists, on what should you base your hope that in desperation you turn to him, he'll answer you? Do you hear what Elijah is saying here? He's saying to Jehoram that he's beyond the help of God's word if it weren't for Jehoshaphat. There is something about proximity to the people of God. This is why as, 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 as young people who get married, if you can, you should have children because you are raising up the next godly generation. And those of us who are Christians here, we, we shouldn't always pull away from secular environments. We should be involved in them. There's something about being in proximity to the people of God that is a blessing, that is a preservation to those around us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 says, The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as is, is they're holy. Do you remember the story of, of Sodom? And remember Abraham's pleading with God? Well, if there are 50 righteous, will you save it? Yes. If there's 45, will you save it? Yes. If there's 30, will you save it? Yes. If there's 15, will you save it? Yes. You understand what he's saying? That if there were that right, some righteous people in Sodom, God would have saved it. Proximity to the people of God is a saving grace. The Bible says it is possible to be on the point of receiving help from God. How might you know if you're in danger of that? How might you discern if you are in danger of putting yourself beyond receiving direction or help from God in times of desperation? One individual put it this way. He said, if your pattern is to seek God like Jehoram only for your convenience so that you are trifling with God, then you may be interested only in escape from trouble, not in the path of discipleship. That was Jehoram. He wanted to use the word of God in the moment, but not to submit to it in the long term. Jehoramites view the word of God as something for emergency only, but not for normal days. God is simply the airbag for the disasters of life, which you hope you never have to use. If that is your pattern, you may be placing yourself beyond the help of God's word. As I thought about this, I thought about Christ, and my heart just burst with joy. Because proximity to Christ means everything. If you are in Christ, you have been blessed with every single spiritual blessing that God has to give you. If you abide in Christ, you are given all, all the resources, all the wisdom, all the, all the help that you need to live life now and all the hope that you need for a future to come. If you are in proximity to Christ, if you abide in Christ, nothing is impossible. Do you know that? Do you know that all the blessings of God are yours and mine because we are in Christ? There is no better person in fact, there is only one person where proximity really, really, really matters. And that is proximity to Jesus Christ. Draw near to Christ. Verse 15. But now bring me a musician. 
don't say what I'm thinking. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bread full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bread will be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you will attack every fortified city and every choice city and, every, and, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning at the same time of the offering of sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Eden, Edom till the country was filled with water. When the Moabites heard that the kings of Israel had come up to fight against, all of, or fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. Dad, what are you doing? Says your six little, six-year-old son. We're going to war. Can I put on my armor, Dad? Yep, off they go from the youngest to the oldest. Quite a sight. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew, and they overthrew the cities on every good piece of land. Every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Ker Haresh. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. Let's stop there for a moment. I wrote in my notes after I thought about, hmm, the easy things of God. I wish we could spend some time talking about music in the place of the Christian's life. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Music, as we, most of us know, has a way of getting to us. It is a way of softening our heart. It is a way of bringing emotions to the service that we never knew were there. It is a way of calming us sometimes. In the Bible, music is used for heading into war. Sometimes it's used also for preparation to hear from God, and this happens to be the case here. While the musician played, the Lord's hand came upon Elisha. And he tells us that the immediate need would be met. Dig dishes. Go get your shovels and go dig ditches, lots of ditch, ditches. Even though you're not going to see wind or rain, the wade or the river or the stream bed will be filled with water, more than enough for you and your cattle and the armies. And then he says, this is an easy thing in the Lord's sight. What? Blow me away. Really? Three armies and all their horses and all their cattle? Nothing to drink? And it's an easy thing to... Fill that valley bottom up with water? But then God says, and let me show you what I will do also. I will hand Moab into your hands. I hope you know who Moab is and remember where they came from. The Moabites came from an incestuous sexual relationship with Lot and his oldest daughter. And they were a thorn in Israel's flesh for hundreds of years. So God says, I will hand the Moabites over to you. And when I do, attack every city, 
fortified in choice, cut down every good tree, stop up every spring of water, ruin every good piece of land with stones. And here you see three miracles, at least, that I see. Miracle one, the next morning, true to his word, water suddenly came from the direction of Eden, Edom and filled the land. No rain, no storm, no nothing, just there's water. I don't know how God did it. I don't know what springs he opened up, but I know that God did it. Miracle one, God provided the water that they needed. Miracle two, the rising sun on the water-filled valley with all the ditches and all the wadis was red like blood. And the Moabites mistook this for infighting. Really? Do you ever know an army that has turned against itself and hacked each other to death? Maybe in a good video game this might happen, but it doesn't seem to happen in the real world. So where did that thought came from? Well, God placed it in their hearts. It's almost like um, a mirage. The Moabites got up in the morning, they looked out, and what they saw looked like blood, and they concluded, they're killing each other. Let's go get them. That's a miracle. And the third is that God did hand the Moabites over to them. They obeyed the Lord until in the end, only the buildings of Kir Heresheth were left. Then men with slings surrounded the city and attacked it. I got a weird picture in my mind of all these brick walls and these guys with slings. Let's get them. Come on, John. Come back for a moment to the light and the easy things of God. Would you consider providing water for three armies and all their cattle an easy thing? Do you get the point of the text here? Don't we need to learn that God is declaring to these three kings that nothing is too difficult for the living God? Do we not sometimes need to be reminded of what Paul says in Ephesians? Now to him who is able to do, to do immeasurably above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. God wants us to believe him and trust him and know that he can do what we can't do. Ah, Lord God, It's you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And Hezekiah answered when God said, test me. He says, it's an easy thing for a shadow to go ten steps, but make a shadow go back ten steps. In other words, make the sun go backwards. God did it. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Loved ones, let your faith rise up this morning. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you've walked through this past week or what you're going to face this week. I do know all of us are probably going to be confronted with things that are beyond our ability to manage. 
In our small group, we had occasion to just talk about prayer this last week, and the name of George Mueller came up. And if you don't know anything about George Mueller, you need to find out about this man, an incredible man of prayer, a gift of God to the Christian community that learn and understand what prayer is. But I was just reading some quotes of him. We should not shrink from opportunities where our faith may be tried. The more I'm in a position to be tried in faith, the more I will have the opportunity of seeing God help, God's help and deliverance. Every fresh instance in which he helps and delivers me will increase my faith. The believer should not shrink back from situations, positions, or circumstances in which his faith may be tried, but he should cheerfully embrace them as opportunities to see the hand of God stretched out to help and deliverance. Thus his faith will be strengthened. Or he says, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. That's really important to hear. Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. What do we need it for then? Go do it yourself. Go solve the problem. Go fix it. Go repair it. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Ah, the Lord of hosts is the living God. Nothing is too difficult for him. In the last three verses, two verses, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. I wrote, hmm. Desperate times call for desperate measures. What do we do when our circumstances are desperate? Ultimately, the three kings, because of Jehoshaphat, turned to God. Mesha ultimately acts with no reference to God, but in his desperation continues to worship the idols that he has made. In the end, there's only one city remaining, and Mesha is there, and he's desperate. And he saw he had only two options. Option one, Take 700 of your best swordsmen. Find the weakest spot in the army, which happened to be the king of Eden, and try and chop your way through until you can reach safety. It didn't work. Option two. Take my firstborn son, who will reign in my place, and offer him as a burnt sacrifice on the wall. How do we understand this great wrath came upon Israel? Four options, two divine, two human. The first option that some want to suggest is what it's talking about is the wrath of God came upon Israel. And you say, well, why? Well, they want to argue that the wrath of God came upon Israel because they had disobeyed the rules for warfare that were outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 19 to 20. 
where God says, when you go and fight against the land, cut down any tree that's not for food and use it for your seeds work, but don't cut down any fruit-bearing tree. And so what they want to argue is that God was mad with Israel because they cut down the fruit-bearing trees that he had told them to cut down. I don't think that one holds any water. The second one is that this was the wrath of Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. <laughs> really? There are no such gods. They're only figments of their imagination. They can't hear. They can't act. They can't talk. They have no power. How in the world would we conclude that a non-god can act in such a way that you appease him and he'll deliver you? There are no such things as gods. There is only one god. So it's not the wrath of Chemosh. The third is that, well, maybe this is a reference to the wrath of the remaining Moabites in the city. They were so stirred by the sacrifice of their king that they engaged in the battle with superhuman strength and rage and a willingness to sacrifice their own lives. If the king was willing to do that, then we're willing to fight to the death for our king. I don't think that's the wrath that's being spoken of. There's a fourth option. It's a description of the horror that came upon the armies of the three kings. They couldn't stomach the act of desperation that they witnessed from this king, Mesha. The murderous sacrifice stirred in them such a reaction of sickness of heart that they just picked up and they went home. Whichever one you choose, the question I think that really is important to be asked is what do you do in times of desperation? Who do you turn to when you're up against a wall? I know sometimes we look at other people when they seem to be in hard circumstances and we say, I wish they would turn to Jesus. But have you ever looked at people in desperate circumstances and they do desperate think things and you think, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? Why did you spend all that money? Why did you go to that place? Why did you, why did you react in that way? Why did, you, why did you, in your desperation, do what you did? Sometimes we think that those things that we do will save us. Those things that we have worshipped, those things that we have put our hopes in, that that's what they require of us. And we do a, if we do a desperate enough thing that out of our desperation, those idols will save us. You think about the, the prophets of Baal and Ashwath as they pled to their gods for help. They shouted loudly. They cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed out from them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. Nobody answered. No one paid attention. The question is, again, what do you, what do, you do in your desperation? What are you sacrificing to your idols in the hopes that they might respond to you in your desperation? Loved ones, are you not glad that God is real? Are you not glad that God hears and answers our prayers and that He can act and deliver us with His great power and that He does not ask us to do desperate things in order for Him to act on our behalf? that God bends His ear towards us, that God climbs down from heaven to us, that God saw our dire state and He sent Jesus into the world to walk with us and to be among us and to help us and to heal us? 
That God doesn't require from us desperate acts in order for us to gain his favor? I've been reading a book that I've been unable to put down. It came on Friday night. This is called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ Towards Sinners and Sufferers. He writes, whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. His heart for you, the real you, is gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. He lives there, right there, and his heart is for you, not on the other side of it. But in that darkness, his heart is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. If you know his heart, you would. Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly of heart. God does not ask us to do desperate things in order for him to be gracious and merciful to us. He simply says, call on me and I will deliver you. Father in heaven, thank you for your word today. There's a lot in it, Father, even in these few verses. I do pray, Lord, that anything that has been said that is incorrect or wrong, you just let it fall away. Don't let your people give it a second thought. But Father, as your Spirit guides us back into your word throughout this day as we reflect on it, as he confirms and as he reaffirms and as he grabs our attention and says, think about this, that we will. Father, would you turn us to Christ? We need Christ. We can't exist and live without him. We have no hope apart from Christ. Will you unite some for the first time to Christ today? Will you reunite others of us with Christ again today? And may all of us realize that our only hope and that the best place in the world to be is clinging to Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.